But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, there's a great excitement in our house today because tonight is the beginning of MasterChef Finals Week. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I can't believe it, but MasterChef is this show, this reality TV show, where uh, people cook and um, gradually eliminated from the top 24 down this week to the final MasterChef for 2018. And uh, if, like me, you're excited by this, um, that means you've been watching. And you know what happens on MasterChef is that it's just these intense moments of pressure and stress. You have to cook a dish in a certain amount of time and it has to have all these elements. It has to have a crunchy element. It has to have a creamy element. It has to pop. When you look at it on the plate, you have to, it looks fantastic. Uh, All these things you're trying to achieve in an amount of time. And, of course, what makes it great television is that stuff goes wrong all the time. And uh, at the end of the episode, everyone brings their dish before the judges. And there are two things that matter. The first thing is, does it look amazing? How many times have we heard, that looks amazing, or it doesn't look amazing? But the second thing, and the most important thing is, does it taste delicious? Uh, That's what really matters. Even if your dish looks amazing, if it doesn't taste delicious, you're in trouble. And our favourite is Jess. She's 19 years old. She makes desserts and she's incredible. She is uh, a genius dessert crafter. And so when the croquembouche challenge came up in MasterChef 2018, you know what a croquembouche is? It's that tower of profiteroles that have to stick together and look beautiful with spun sugar and decorations and so on. So when the croquembouche challenge comes up, Jess is happy. She knows that she's got an edge on this. And we're, we're thinking Jess is going to win this challenge. And off she goes and she's making her pastry and she puts the things on the tray and she puts the tray into the oven and she flicks the door and she turns away and the camera goes back. And what's happened? The oven hasn't shut. And so for the rest of the episode, while Jess makes her sugar and her decorations, the camera keeps panning to this oven that is slightly open. And when she 
takes the pastry puffs, what's the word, out of the oven, her, her face falls. But she won't give up because you don't give up in MasterChef. She's still going to make this croquembouche. So she sticks what has become not fluffy balls of pastry but kind of crumbly biscuits. She forms them into a tower and then she starts to spin the sugar. And she weaves sugar round and round the croquembouche. And she has little flowers. And the thing is, it is you have never seen anything like this. And she brings her croquembouche before the judges and they say... Jess, that looks amazing. We have even Adriano Zumbo, if you know who that is, is there to say, your croquembouche looks amazing. But how will it taste? And when they take it apart and bite into Jess's crumbly biscuits, they have to agree it doesn't taste delicious. And this is just my way... (laughs) (laughs) of taking us back to where we were in Romans 3 last week, which was a heavy place. And I don't want to be too heavy today because today is about good news. But where we found ourselves in verse 20 of Romans 3 last week was before God, in God's courtroom, before the judge. And when you're in God's courtroom, it doesn't matter whether you've been good whether you've obeyed the law, whether you've been better than the person next to you. Because God is the one judge who sees what's happening inside. He looks at the heart. And that's where we landed, wasn't it? Before God in his courtroom, before the judge who sees our hearts. And Paul said, there is no one ever who has been righteous or right before God. And it was a really difficult place for us to land. And people were saying afterwards, this is heavy. This feels heavy in my heart. And that's actually right. That's Paul is taking us to that place so that now we can see what will God do. Because we have no defence, Paul said our mouths are stopped. We are standing there and there's nothing left that we can do to make ourselves right with God. It is all up to him. What will he do? What kind of God is God? What kind of judge is he? And so we come to the second part of Romans chapter 3. And um, just as the law has shone on our hearts and revealed that we are corrupt, that we have looked after ourselves before others and worshipped other things, anything else other than God himself, now we need to take the light and shine it onto God and see what God is like, because that is what the law also does. The law of God not only reveals our unrighteousness, but it reveals, we see, God's righteousness. And so verse 21, Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So the first thing we see is that God is righteous, and perfect, and that he wants to give us his righteousness. He is going to fix the problem that we cannot fix, not by changing the law or forcing us to behave, but by providing a solution, a solution apart from the law. And what is this solution? Verse 24 we see, the solution is that he's going to justify us freely by his grace through the redemption that comes 
by Christ Jesus. Incredibly, God's solution is to be not just the judge, the just one, but also the justifier, the one who will make us right. And justified, if you haven't heard that word before, just means to be made right just as if you'd never sinned. So he's going to deal with the consequences of sin himself. And the thing about Paul's writing, I want you to, to understand, is that it's forensic, you might say. Or um, it's, a, it's, it's this argument, he's trying to look at how things work. Or maybe if you take apart a car engine or a clock or something and you look at all the pieces and work out, we're examining it like this. But we mustn't forget that those parts make a clock or a car. And when we look at how God's plan works, we mustn't forget that this is not just about how something works, but what it reveals to us about God and why he's doing it. So I want us to notice, first of all, before we look at how this works, that God's solution has to do with who he is. In verse 24, first of all, we learn that God makes us right freely, generously, because he wants to. Secondly, graciously, by his grace, not begrudging, but as a kind of love gift to us. God loves us. And in verse 25, when we go on um, to see that he does it through Jesus' death, we discover that he's also patient. That before Jesus even died, people were sinning and they deserved God's judgment and punishment, but he held off because he was waiting for this moment in time. So I hope you get this picture that God creates a solution from his own heart of love for us, his generous and loving heart. And the solution is this. He is going to atone for our sins. He is going to, that word just means, make amends. And the way he does it is kind of gruesome. He sends his son Jesus into the world, a part of his very own being, as a human being, to live the life that no one ever has lived, that is a righteous life, not just obedient to the Lord, doing the right things, but from his heart and his head and into his mouth, out, out in his words and his actions in the world, Jesus lived the perfect, righteous life. God sends Jesus in the world to do this and then to die as a sacrifice on the cross for his blood to be shed instead of ours or for us to make amends so that we too can be made righteous. It's a very confronting idea and solution. And actually, I mean, some people find this really off-putting because we're a bit more, our culture, we don't want to talk about shedding of blood for another person. But this is God's way. It's a drastic measure for a serious problem. And it doesn't take us by surprise. God has actually painted a picture of what he's going to do in the Old Testament and through the people of Israel. This practice of atonement was something that was connected to the law. We've talked about the law and the commandments that God gave Israel and how they show what he is like. But um, connected to that was this system of atonement of sacrificing animals and sprinkling the blood 
to um, make up for what was lacking or for the disobedience or for the purification of the people. And in Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews actually um, has a good little summary. I'll just read it to you from chapter 9, verse 18. When Moses proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So this was a concept that for the Jews in the Roman church was they understood this. Perhaps for the Gentiles, the ones who had come in, were trusting in Jesus and hadn't had that history, they needed to hear this and understand it too, and we need to understand it because I don't think any of us have had a system of animal sacrifices in our past to make up for our shortcomings. But for God to send his own son into the world to die on the cross for us is a very profound, huge and confronting solution, isn't it? But the wonderful thing about this solution is it is for all people, for all time. So the system of animals being uh, sacrificed was really just a picture. They had to keep doing it. Um, and it didn't change their hearts. Remember this heart problem? It just made up for what was lacking in the behaviours. But this solution of Jesus coming to die for us ushers in a new era, an era apart from the law one where we can stop trying to meet God's standards or being deeply ashamed of our shortcomings, but where we can be made right, where the perfect Jesus stands with us and makes us like himself before God. Beautiful picture, a great solution of God's for us, this atonement. And Isaiah the prophet, um, it wasn't that this failed, but Isaiah the prophet and other prophets in the Old Testament also said, look, you know, that this moment when Jesus would come and die was coming. They weren't unprepared for this. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, he, write, he says this, um, Surely he, and this is pointing to Jesus, took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God. When you look at Jesus on the cross, you see a picture of someone abandoned by God, don't you? But, Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And I wanted to read you that bit from before Jesus so that you could understand and really take to heart that this was always God's plan. It was always his solution. To love us in this self-sacrificial way. And this righteousness that comes, we're washed. This blood is sprinkled on us, Jesus' blood. We are washed, whiter as, white, our hearts are white as snow, excuse me. Um, we are right before God. Paul also talks about it in the passage as our redemption. In verse 24, this is um, a payment 
a price that is paid for us. So there's two concepts that in this passage, as Paul picks apart, how does the cross work? It is a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. It is God buying us back or paying the price for us. So this is God's solution, a solution that works. The only solution that works to make us righteous before God. Well, what uh, is required of us? Nothing. (laughs) But that we have faith. Paul will later talk about how faith is a gift from God. So if you struggle to have faith, you might want to ask God for that gift. But what does he say? He says, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Verse 22. And verse 28, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So the law is gone. We don't need to obey it to be right with God anymore. Jesus has made us right. He has made up for our sins in his death on the cross. And we are to have faith. And what is faith? Well, Paul has said to believe, but it's not just an intellectual assent, is it? Paul means more than that. To put your faith in something is to trust, to wholly rely on. I was saying at the start that we are in the hands of God, but perhaps like a toddler, we, you see it in church, we saw, I think we've seen it in church many times, <laughs> toddlers trying to be restrained and wriggle free. Faith is trusting the person who's holding you and relaxing. Or if you've broken free and run for, to run back. I don't know what image replies to you, but it's that sense of putting yourself in God's arms. I think that story, that news story a few weeks ago about the Thai soccer team is the best illustration that we have um, in the news recently about what it looks like to have faith. You know this story, I take it. These 12-year-old boys go um, exploring caves in a mountain and three kilometres into the mountain they get trapped in a cave because the rains are falling and the other caves and the pathway is flooded. And it took, the, you know, the whole world was watching as this problem, this massive problem was sorted out. We needed to, they needed to find a solution. The ra- there are going to be more rains. The oxygen levels were going down. How are they going to get these boys out of there? And then we discovered these boys don't know how to swim let alone dive. They need to do scuba diving to get out of, in and out of that cave system. They are alive but utterly helpless and they are going to die. What? They, they need to put themselves into the hands of someone else who can help them. They are helpless. And the solution, I don't know if you followed this story, the solution was extreme. Each boy, we discovered later, was sedated because they were worried that they were going to kill themselves and the other divers by, by panicking because it was so cold and wet and they can't swim. They had full masks and scuba diving gear on. Someone was behind them. There was a diver behind them with oxygen for the child in front and then there was a diver at the front who led the three out. And apparently it was for each child an 11-hour round trip. 
extraordinary measures for a terrible problem. And what did each of those 12-year-old boys have to do? They just had to trust. They had to have faith. This was the only solution. They had to allow themselves to be put in a suit and sedated and carried out of the cave. I think this is what <laughs> faith in God looks like. Yet, put yourselves in the hands of God, knowing from this passage that God is gracious and loving and patient. A good God with a drastic solution to a very big problem. Righteousness by faith. It's serious but exciting because, of course, Jesus dies on the cross and then he's risen three days later to show us that it's not just about payment for sin, it's about bringing us new life and a new story. Not just a, re a revolutionised life now, but life into eternity with him. It's a big, big plan of God's, an exciting plan that we are invited to be part of. So what do we do? What shall we do now with this passage? Usually we come to the end and we um, try to apply this to our life. This is a dangerous passage to try and apply and ask you to do something, isn't it? Because the whole message of this is you don't do anything. God does it. It's God's work for you. And yet he asks us to have faith, to put ourselves in his hands, to not stay in the cave, but to go with him. And maybe if you're here today and you've never done this before, you haven't actually put your faith in Jesus, this might be news to you that Jesus' death on the cross was a sacrifice for you and that his blood can make you clean, that God has paid a price for you, that you are special to him. And I, if that's you, I want to say, first of all, if you have more questions about this, ask your questions because this is serious stuff. We want, to, we want to work this out and see if it's worth following Jesus. So please ask your questions. Maybe you've been part of the church for a long time. Don't be embarrassed to ask questions. I've still got questions, you know. We all keep asking our questions. But don't put it off either. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, yeah, I do want to have faith in Jesus. I want to trust him. I want to trust God's solution and start afresh. And please do that. I'll pray towards the end a prayer that you can pray along those lines to put yourself into God's hands. What it means to have faith, if you do this for the first time, is to acknowledge that you have a problem and that God's solution in sending Jesus to die for you is the solution that will work and that you want to be on board with that and that you're going to follow him and let him work in your life. But there are many of us already who have been living the life of faith for a long time. We've been coming to church and trusting in Jesus. We've sung those songs this morning. We've prayed the confession and we mean it. We know what this means. And so for you, I want to say, encourage you to keep coming back and examining the parts of this and understanding how it works. But I also want to point out a couple of um, traps that happen to people who've been living faith for a while. And Pete and I talk about this. 
We have an ongoing conversation about um, what kind of people of faith do we have at Mary Creek. And there are two kinds of traps that I'm going to describe to you. And the first one is that there are Christians or people of faith with tender conscience. These people understand that they are sinful and they feel a deep shame about their sin. Whenever they think about their sin, they they find it really hard. They find it hard to talk to God about it. They find it hard to accept God's grace in their life. They understand that the cross works, but they find it hard to grasp God's love and grace. And so when you hear this kind of teaching, it really cuts you, you know? You really feel it. And then the other kind of trap is kind of falling on the other side, which is the kind of cheap grace faith, which says, I get it, I'm forgiven. I don't have to do anything anymore. So when I sin, I don't take it too seriously because it doesn't matter. God has paid for my sin. And when I'm thinking about my life, um, I'm free, and so I choose to do what I like, and I continue on happy in the knowledge that I am God's child, but possibly not taking seriously enough that following Jesus and having him as Lord of your life will mean that God is going to work in you and work in your life. And so your faith becomes a bit, I don't know, underdeveloped, if that makes sense, a bit flabby. There's a way in between that I want to say to you, which I'm calling robust faith. What we want is robust faith. Faith which you saw at the end of the passage, Paul says, do we do away with the law? Do we not care anymore about God's ways? No, we uphold the law. Robust faith upholds the law. It says God's ways are still good. They still show us how good God is. It still shows us what he wants for the world. And so we care about that. And we ask God to keep transforming us and our hearts and our community so that we can live that out in the world. But it also grasps onto God's grace for the tender conscience. And if you're that kind of person, then every day you need to wake up and remind yourself that God loves you, that he wants to be with you, that he's at work in your life, and that whatever you do, he will forgive you and continue to hold you, like the father in that prodigal son story that we talked about last week. And so the robust person of robust faith will navigate these realities, serious about sin, but more serious about God's grace and the work he wants to do in their life. Because you'll understand that primarily this is a heart issue and about your relationship with God. But really the thing that we do when we read this passage about the great gospel news The thing I want us to do, I guess today especially, and maybe into the week, is to wallow and bask in God's grace. Let it be like a wave crashing over you. Continue to reflect on the love that God has for you, that he would go to such measures to make you right and to preserve your life. Let it be a balm on your heart. Use it as a balm for other people's hearts when you hear them down on themselves, be gracious to one another. Let's extend that grace in our community here. If we were really gripped by grace, what would it look like in our relationship with one another? It's a question to ask ourselves. And we won't boast, will we? This is Paul's other application. If we are gripped by grace, we won't boast about who we are and the good things that we've done. We will boast in the extraordinary gift that God has given us.
on Friday night at youth group, um, we invited the kids to spend some time with God, thinking about how he'd been at work in their life and asking him for the thing that they wanted to see happen next in their lives. And one of the kids came to me, and he's only just heard this message of the gospel. And he has a hard life. And he said to me, when I was talking to God, I just thought, I really want God to be closer to me. I really want to know that he's with me in the struggles. And as I wrote that down, suddenly I did know. As he reflected on God's grace and called out to God to be close to him, God was with him. And so this is a big project for the whole world, for people for all time, but it's also for individuals and in your own heart and your life. So I encourage you to be honest with God and to cry out to him and ask him for his grace and mercy wherever you need it in your life. I'm going to pray for us now. I'm going to pray a prayer that if you want to pray to ask God to give you faith in Jesus, that you can pray. Or if you want to do this again, um, you might be able to recommit your life as well. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we admit that we have done wrong and we have not done right and that our hearts have been turned away from you. And as we look at you, we see your incredible love and the great measures you take to rescue us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this great gift of mercy, for the promise of new life and life eternal with you. And we ask that you grant us faith. Help us to grasp hold of your grace more and more each day. We ask that it would spill out out of our hearts, into our words and into our actions in our community here and beyond. We ask that faith in you will be transforming us and the people around us. Make us a blessing to others as you promised you would. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.